How's everybody doing? Good, good. That was very unenthusiastic. <laughs> Y'all awake? Looks a little gloomy in here today. That might be it. Um, well, I'm so glad to be back. And if you didn't notice I was gone, then I missed you too. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Uh, we love you, Lord. Uh, Father, without you, we're wasting our time this morning. We're just a bunch of people in a room trying to say helpful things to each other and singing songs. And uh, Father, we, we want it to be more than that, God. We want this to be uh, a conversation with the king of the universe. God, we need you to speak to us by your word. Father, we need you to, as you promise your word is living and active, we need you to speak to us through that living and active word today. And Father, we need your grace uh, if we're going to understand your word well and respond to your word well. So we ask that you give it to us, Lord. And we pray that Christ would be lifted up. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, um, last week uh, in Ephesians 5, as we finished that chapter, John talked about a specific kind of relationship, marriage. Um, And I want to start today by talking about relationships, too, because here in Ephesians chapter 6, as we begin with continuing to talk about kinds of relationships, though a little bit different kinds of relationships. There are really two basic kinds of relationships. So, I mean, we're talking about marriage last week and and kids and and masters and slaves this week. But if we think about all relationships in general, friendships, anybody we ever meet, there are really two basic kinds of relationships. There's that first kind of relationship that doesn't really affect your life that much. And then there's that other kind of relationship that really redefines your life in some ways. There's that first kind of relationship that really doesn't affect any of your other relationships at all. It just kind of stands in isolation. And then there's that second kind of relationship that affects all of your other ones. Let me, let me give you some examples. One example of that first kind of relationship is a coworker, Right? So if you think about a coworker, it is a real relationship, and then you have to interact with one another. You may see each other often, maybe even every single day. And some of you are mad about some of the people you've got to see every single day. You... <laughs> I'm going to let you deal with that at home. Um, You even get on each other's nerves sometimes. But you have to figure out how to work together day after day after day. But when you're not in the office, you don't necessarily even think about that person. Uh, It doesn't affect anything on your weekend. That's the first kind of relationship. It doesn't affect your life that much. For an example of that second kind of relationship, maybe marriage, where marriage redefines your whole life. You don't really relate to anything in the same way that you used to. It reshapes even what the rest of your relationships look like. I know some dudes who have 30,000 different female friends that they like to call and text all the time. And I'm like, just understand, bro, if you get married one day, that has to change. It redefines the way you interact with people. I remember when me and uh, my wife got married in 2009. I mean, you go through premarital and you think about the ways that life changes. But then just something different sets in where you don't make any decisions the way that you used to make them. You don't do anything. I mean, even my relationships with lots of my friends drastically changed. It was harder for us to spend time together. Uh, We talked about different things. I mean, just stuff changes around marriage. That's one of those second kinds of relationships. So, again, two kinds of relationships, one that doesn't disturb your life much and one that changes everything. A relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is that second kind of relationship. And as we're looking at this text today, it's going to show us this because it's going to look at two different kinds of, of, of relationships between parents and children and masters and slaves. And it's going to tell them how to interact with each other. And what we're going to see as we look at that, as it addresses those four groups of people, children, parents, slaves and masters, we're going to see the common thread that our relationship with Jesus must determine the way that we relate to other people. And that's because when you encounter Jesus, Jesus changes absolutely everything. So if you're here today, you're a Christian, your relationship with Jesus has to determine how you relate to other people more than your personality or more than your wiring or more than your circumstances or more than what our culture expects from you. Your relationship with Jesus has to determine the way that you relate to other people. Think about the week that you had this week. How much did your relationship with Jesus determine how you related to other people? I mean, think about your coworkers. Think about your spouse. Think about your boss. Think about your kids. Here's one of the reasons why a relationship with Jesus has to determine that. 
Because your response to someone and interaction with them is actually at every single point some kind of response to an interaction with Jesus. That's because Jesus gives us guidelines for the way that we're supposed to interact with people. And so anytime we interact with somebody, we're also interacting with Jesus and what he said, either in faith and obedience or in doubt and disobedience. Right. So if I respond to somebody instead of graciously, if I respond with anger, I've also responded to Jesus's word with doubt and disobedience. So it's really important for us to think about how we relate to other people and what our relationship with Jesus has to do with that. And like I said, we'll be looking in in two areas, really parenting Uh, and a much more complex issue of slavery. So there's really good stuff in our text. There's really hard stuff in our text. Thank you for the welcome back. Uh, And there's a theme of authority. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Do I need to pick up a different mic? So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. All the instructions that Paul is about to give us of our relationships, these particular relationships, uh, is going to fall really under the stuff he's already told us to do. So he's already told us to love one another in the Christian community. In Ephesians uh, 4, at the end of 4, he talks about uh, a kind of mutual submission where all of us submit to one another and love one another. And what he's going to talk about here falls under those guidelines. So Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. That's the word of God. What we're going to see today is Jesus changes everything. And we're going to look at it in the life of these four groups. And we'll start with children, as the text does. So if we're going to do points, we're just going to talk about how Jesus changes everything. Number one, Jesus changes children. Now, as a culture, we we have a problem with authority, right? And here's our problem with it. We don't like it. All people have authority problems of some kind, but we as a culture are very anti-authority. We can sometimes think of authority uh, as that joy killer that's not going to allow us to do anything fun. We can look at authority like the boogeyman that's out to get us. And there are reasons why authority tends to bother us. Right. One reason we don't like authority is because we just assume we don't need it. Why would we ever want anybody else with any kind of authority to tell us what to do or to have any kind of control in our lives? The other reason we usually don't like authority is because sinners sometimes abuse authority. Right. So we see this with some of the issues with police brutality and our broken justice system. Authority has issues. We don't like it. And sometimes it's corrupt. But when we look in Scripture, the concept of authority itself is a good thing, even parental authority. I want you to listen again to what Paul says uh, to children. He doesn't say, hey, just tolerate authority from your parents. Do enough while they're watching you. Said, oh, shut up. No, no, He treats authority like it's actually a good gift from God. This is what he says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, it's interesting that Paul even addresses children here, right? Because though he's calling them to obey their parents, he's not treating children like they're little insignificant people in the, in the uh, life of the church. There was this teacher when I was in high school, and when people got on her nerves, she would just call you an irritant. Like we were some itchy, inanimate object. There was 
you know, annoying her. That's not how Paul treats children here, like they're a nuisance just to be tolerated. He actually speaks to them as disciples of Jesus. He speaks to them as if they're following Jesus. And he has standards for the way that they should live. And that should be a lesson to us, even about the kids who are among us in our church. Let's remember that Jesus can save them. Let's ask God to save them and let's treat them as actual moral individuals. Here's what Paul says to them here. Obey. And I'll define that word obey since it's a big part of what we're going to talk about today. Obedience is, of course, submission to someone else's authority. Obeying somebody is when you follow their commands. But the kind of obedience Paul's talking about is more than just saying yes uh, to what somebody says. It's a kind of posture that respects someone's authority. And one of the ways I know is because Paul tells them to obey their parents in the Lord. And that phrase in the Lord basically means as you would the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the kind of message I would have wanted to hear when I was a child. Because my parents' authority felt frustrating. So the last thing I would have wanted to hear was, hey, obey them and listen to what they said as if it was Jesus saying. Because my parents' authority when I was a kid, it felt like there was this amazing world out there in front of me waiting to be enjoyed. And the only thing that stood in front of me in that world was my parents. That's what it often felt like. One really small example is... When I was in middle school, I really wanted braids badly. My dad had this very strange fear that I was going to be a thug. I'm like, grew up in the suburbs, I got braces, I don't think so. But I really wanted braids. My dad would not let me get braids. And I felt like, ah, I just want to look like Alan Iverson, Dad. Come on. Just let me. He wouldn't let me. felt like there was this big world out there. My, my parents stood in the way with their authority. But. Still, Paul says, obey them as if they were Jesus. Why should children obey? He says, because it's right. For this is right. It's the right thing to do. God has put parents uh, in this uh, place of authority. God has ordered things that way. So when you're in the grocery store and you see a kid acting up and disobeying their parents, and you're sitting there in line like, wow, that is a terrible kid. That parent needs to get it together. When When you think that, number one, stop judging them. You're supposed to be a Christian. Number two... It's because there is something right in your heart that says a child should not be disobeying their parents in such a blatant way. Because we understand that children are supposed to be obedient to their parents. It's the right thing. Parents have been put in place by God to help children make sense of the world. So I see this as a parent, even in small ways, whether that's eating or walking or talking. And of course, as kids grow older, it's helping them understand morals and values and discipline and ultimately helping them to know what it's like to follow God and honor God. And it's right for children to obey their parents. Parents are this extension of God's authority, almost like a a babysitter, right? So I have authority over my kids. When I go somewhere, for instance, I went somewhere yesterday, and two friends stayed there and watched my kids. Now, when I leave, I expect my son and my daughter to do what they say, right? I've given them my authority. Do what they say. I'm not going to tell my son before I leave, hey, it's not me, so do what you want. Pee on the floor, throw food, do whatever you want. It ain't me. Have a good time. That's not what I'm saying. Every time before I leave, me and my son have a talk. I say, hey, look at me. You need to listen. You need to do what they say. Right? And he's trying to look all around like, I know you hear me. And my daughter's one, so I don't really say anything to her because she don't know what I'm saying. But I expect her to, to, to do what they say because I've given them my authority for that period of time to help care for them and protect them. They're an extension of my authority. And in a similar way, God, who owns everybody, who has authority over everybody, has given parents, almost like a babysitter, as an extension of his authority to care for and to guide children. And that is a good thing. Children should obey. And even though parents are perfect, I can attest to that as a parent. Parents are a gift from God and children should obey. It is, of course, harder to obey when, when parents are imperfect. But like John said last week, I mean, it's not submission isn't about them being perfect. It's about submitting to God's authority. Now, the vast majority of us in this room are grown, so we're not in our parents' home. And so we're like, I'm glad this text don't apply to me today. But, it, but he keeps going. He says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. So, of course, when we move out of our family's homes and we provide for ourselves, we're not under our parents' authority in the same way. But he is calling us still to honor our parents. To honor your father and mother means to respect them, to revere them, to value them as you should. 
Obeying is, is part of that, obeying the authority, but it also means treating them with the respect that comes with the title parent. And like he says there, there's a promise attached to that, that you'll live long in the earth. There are obedient, I mean, there are rewards for obedience sometimes. Sometimes we only think of obedience as if it steals, but obedience actually enriches. Good things come from it. Now, he's not saying for every time you said yes to your parents, I'm going to add a couple months and a couple years. That's not what he's saying. Right. It's more like if you obey your parents, generally your parents being more wise than you will lead you in the right direction. Right. Some of us have had a longer life because our parents said, don't walk in front of cars. And we've lived a longer life on the earth than we would without them. Right. He's saying there are rewards. It's good authority. It's a good thing for us. And that should be an incentive for us to honor them. So what are some ways we can honor our parents when we're not under their authority in the same way we don't live with them? Well, you know, they can't make decisions for us anymore. One way to honor our parents, though, if we're grown, is to include them in life decisions because they are older, often wiser. It's a good thing, right? It's good to say, hey, I'm trying to think about these jobs. Do you have any? That's a good way to honor our parents, bring them in decisions, allow them to still have influence in your life. One way we can honor our parents, don't talk to them like you talk to your crazy friends. They are your parents, right? They do have a special role in your life. And I know sometimes I... Our parents can get on our nerves a little bit, but it's a good thing to press through that and honor them as hard as that is sometimes, right? And we should think about whether or not there are ways in our life where we've tried to, you know, because we're not under our parents' authority in the same way, dis, kind of discard them and dishonor them. And if there are ways that we've dishonored our parents, even if that's slandering them to other people, we should repent of those ways. We should confess that sin and love them and try to find specific ways to honor them. You know, if you're here and, and your parents are both alive and you know both of your parents, I want to encourage you that that's not a privilege that every single person has. And so I want to encourage you to take advantage of that relationship and honor them. Some of us have lost parents. Some of us have never met some of our parents. It's a good thing to honor them. Some of us have very broken relationships with our parents. I want to encourage you, even if your parents seem impossible, even if it seems like there's no way they'll ever respond properly, I want to encourage you This passage is not telling you to control anybody else. It's talking about how you can be faithful to Jesus. Find specific ways to honor your parents. It's part of our obedience to Jesus. Jesus changes everything, including our relationship with our parents. Those of us who don't have fathers or don't have mothers or didn't grow up with our parents, whoever did raise you, this honor belongs to them. And one of the beautiful things about being engrafted into the family of Jesus is that some of the things we may have missed out on through the parents that we wish we had, God gives us through his family. That there are others who teach us things that we would have learned elsewhere. That there are others who love us in ways that we wish we would have gotten elsewhere. That's one of the beautiful things of being brought into the family of God. Right, so we see a child's relationship with Jesus changes how they relate to their parents, but he doesn't stop with the children. Number two, Jesus changes parenting. You notice, just like Paul did with husbands and wives, he talked about wives submitting, and then he went for the husbands, talking to both sides of the equation. Same thing happens here. He's now talking to the fathers, and I think generally parents. I think he speaks directly to the fathers because the fathers are to lead the family. And it's the father's responsibility to make sure things are taken care of. So, dads, you should feel the weight of this passage, but moms, you shouldn't just sit back and relax like this doesn't apply to you. It's just that fathers lead in this. What I love about this is the Bible doesn't assume that kids are messed up and they got issues, but that parents who want an authority have it all together. No, no. The Bible knows that parents are just as messed up and need just as much Holy Spirit and instruction in order to honor God. So he then talks to fathers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. During this time, culturally, fathers had this kind of absolute control over their kids. There wasn't much expectation for any kind of love and affection. So knowing that, Paul says, against culture, right, don't exasperate them. That means don't provoke them to anger. Don't, don't be harsh and aggressive with them in such a way that they'll be angry with you. I know we've all seen parents or have at times been parents who just yell at their kids nonstop. No matter what's happened, yelling at our kids and, and causing them to be angry. And what Paul's saying here is the fact that parents have authority over children does not give parents the right to be so harsh with them that their kid despises them. He's not saying don't discipline your kids. Please do discipline your kids. 
But discipline does not equal exasperate. Those are different things. You can discipline your kids in a loving and gentle but firm way without being so harsh and aggressive with them that they despise you. One of the reasons that's hard is because kids can be very irritating. Kids can be very irritating. However, God has not called us to use that as an excuse. Right? We're filled with the Holy Spirit. God has given us self-control. We need to ask God to continue to give us the gentleness and the joy and the patience that he would work in us to help us to parent well. One of the things, parents, about us is that we are a picture of authority, the very first picture of authority that our kids will see. So even as you think of this question of all of us hating authority for some reason, the very first picture of authority that our kids will see will be us. And we should not do anything that would make them think of authority as a corrupt and abusive thing. Especially fathers. You're, you're the first picture of a, of a father that your kid will have. And we should not interact with our kids in such a way that makes it harder to see God as a loving father. Our role is important to our child's eternity. It affects how they see God. So let's not be a hindrance to the gospel. Let's be an example. Let's be a help to them trusting Jesus in the gospel. And as we're talking about fathers, our our culture just does not put much value on fatherhood. So so often we as men just kind of see it as something we end up getting trapped into or some kind of burden. So that either often fathers are not around or fathers are jerks when they are around. And this text is helping us to understand that children are very precious gifts in our hands. They're fragile and they're moldable. So we should not use our hands as they're in our hands to shatter them with harsh words and and withdrawn emotions. Instead, we should gently shape them with those hands because we have that privilege given to us by God. I think about my my son, my three-year-old. He's a very emotional and gentle little dude. And sometimes I want to push him down and say, man up. Right? The other day he was playing with another kid and the kid like took his train and my son just started whining and looking at me. I want to say, man up, young man. Right. However, me just being very harsh and aggressive with him all the time likely is not actually going to help him grow. Might make me feel better in the moment, but it's not actually going to help him grow in the long term. Uh, Instead of making him angry and hate me, I should use my authority to positively shape him. So as as Paul speaks directly to fathers and leadership, I want to speak to fathers now. You should ask your spouse if you're a father. You should ask your spouse. Or your partner in raising that child. How are you doing in this area? You know, are you interacting with your children in such a way that you're exasperating them? Are you provoking them to anger? If you're a single parent, you should ask people who are around you and see you, how am I doing with interacting with my children? Am I provoking them to anger or am I being firm but gentle and gracious and raising them in a loving way? And one thing is it's never too late to do better. I mean, if you think every moment of your life as a parent until right now you've done a terrible job, you can right now repent, trust Jesus, and do better. And God gives us the strength and his Holy Spirit to do that. So Paul says, hey, fathers, don't exasperate them. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So parenting is not just telling them what not to do. It's also giving positive instruction. Right. No athlete gets great by just a coach yelling at them and pointing out their mistakes. Of course, there has to be some kind of positive training. Right. Have to get a little better. We as parents are to train and instruct our kids in the Lord, trying to help them become men and women who honor God. One of the obvious ways we have to do that is by teaching our kids God's word. Which looks very different for different people. I have one friend who is in D.C. every single morning. He made me feel like a terrible husband and father in general. Every single morning, he would wake up with his kids, sit them all down, have four kids, and he would do a little devotional every morning. They, would go, they were going through the Gospel of Mark when I was still in D.C. Every morning with his kids, made them breakfast and did that every morning. And then whenever he was out of town, he would record video versions and play it for them. I was like, what am I doing? I'm not a dad. I don't know what. But, but here's the thing. It looks different for different people in different seasons of life. Right, so my kids are really, really young. So my three-year-old, and so we read this little children's Bible every night. He pays attention to about 3% of it, and I hope that 3% sticks. And then we pray together every night, right? So I'm trying to teach him who God is. We can go to God. He's good. He's loving. We can thank him. We can ask him for things, and this is what he's like in little pieces. 
Uh, I know people who do like kind of catechism stuff with their kids, where they'll just teach them basic truths about God. Hey, who is God? Basic answers. And, and by the time they're old enough to begin to understand these things, it sinks in a little more. There are all kinds of ways. But the principle here is we need to be intentional to teach our kids God's word. There is no more important or no more perfectly organized kind of method of discipleship than parenting. They can't get away from you right now. You get the opportunity to use that time to teach and model good stuff. And the main thing we want to teach and model, of course, is the gospel of Jesus. Not just saying, hey, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. We want to also say, hey, we can't keep all these commands, which is the good news why God sent Jesus. And we want to be examples of trying to obey Jesus, but also saying, hey, I mess up sometimes, and that's why I need Jesus. I mean, let's think very carefully about how we want to train and instruct our children. And one of the good things that we can do, one of the good things about being in a church like this, or any church, is that we can look to others for help. I can't tell you how much stuff about parenting I learned just from seeing other people do it. Right? Just from seeing people be good parents. So much stuff. From little stuff as an infant, from like sleep training or sleep schedule to keep your sanity, to more important things like doing kind of family devotional things and things that I continue to learn more and more and more. There are more experienced parents, obviously, in this congregation than me. There are people like Richard who have 45 kids, and I want to learn from him. And his kids are in a stage beyond mine. Be fruitful and multiply. It's a good thing. But look, there are people who are in stages beyond me, and I want to learn from them. And this is the good thing about being in a church is we can learn from each other. We have areas we need to grow, and God is gracious to give us one another to do that. And God has given us the task of discipling our children. And this is one of the reasons why our children's ministry is um, what happens in there should be a supplement to what parents are doing in the lives of their kids every day. We, we want them to learn things about Jesus while they're here. But that's a supplement to what parents should be doing. We should be doing as parents. So let's, let's ask Jesus to help us to do better. So many ways we can grow. Let's look to this text for instruction. So Jesus is going to change children, how they relate to their parents, and parents, how they relate to their children. And now Paul, as he's kind of going through this household thing, hey, husbands, wives, now he says children and parents. Another part of the household during this time was slaves. So, number three, Jesus changes slaves. And I want to read the next part of the text, which is hard, and then we're going to talk about it. Ephesians 6, I'm going to start at verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, often our first reaction to a text like that is, huh? Because something that seems so obviously wrong to us, like slavery, Paul here begins to talk about people in that situation, and he doesn't spend all his time saying that it's wrong. So people who don't like the Bible will look at texts like this, and they'll say, this is exactly why I don't like Christians and I don't like Christianity. This is a book that is a, a human book with outdated morals. So of course it can't speak to what our lives should look like and our sexuality or any kind of gender issues of any kind of anything. And one of the main proofs of that is how it deals with the slavery issue. This is people's favorite thing to point out and say that the Bible can't be true because of this. Now, it's no secret that here in the United States, in American slavery, passages like this were used to try to justify slavery. But that doesn't mean that Scripture actually does justify slavery. We have a way of seeing the things we want to see in the text to do what we want to do, right? We can look at anything and see what we want to see. So if I watch basketball, there's any kind of basketball on my three-year-old son sees things that are close to his interests, mainly the mascots. His dream is to see massive animals dance. So when he sees, so he's not looking at people dribbling and dunking. He's like, lion dancing, right? That's what he zooms in on and sees. We tend to see things and pay attention to things and zero in on things that somehow connect with our interests and our desires. So 
when you think about the kind of men who were slave masters, the kind of men who in their heart were okay, they could stomach that individuals were kidnapped, stuffed in a ship in such ridiculous conditions, that probably a third of them died on the way over. They can go and stand at a slave block and purchase men as if they're some kind of property, beat them horribly, use them as animals for their own interests. Now, if we're going to see those men as some kind of great interpreters of Scripture who we should trust, then we need to ask ourselves a few questions. Right? The, the way that they use Scripture is an indictment on them. It's not an indictment on Scripture itself. Those were evil, hateful men who used the scripture as an excuse for their racist hatred of Africans. But even though I think there's no way you can honestly read scripture and come to that conclusion, this is the most common thing that's going to be leveled against us as Christians. So I want to spend a little bit of time making sure that you do not think this text or any other text in scripture proves that God was okay with what happened with slavery, that God is okay with the abuse of Africans or any other race of people. I want you to be able to trust your Bible. I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about this before we apply it to ourselves. Real quick things. We should not assume that slavery that we see talked about in Scripture was just like American slavery or the transatlantic slave trade. It wasn't race-based. They weren't kidnapping people by race. People ended up as slaves in a few different ways. War. They were in debt. They were born in slavery. Different ways. We don't know exactly what it was like. Because people only wrote about people that they thought were interesting. We don't have anything from any slaves themselves during this time about what it was like. But we know that it was very different than what slavery was like here in the, in the United States. I mean, there were uh, slaves who actually were treated as family and, and servants. And slaves that can make money and slaves that actually had other slaves. They didn't just use slaves to do stuff they didn't want to do. Slaves were often more educated than their masters and went and did all kinds of stuff. It really depended on what your master was like. But there were other kinds of slaves who were treated very brutally and harshly, as bad or worse than what we think of as American slavery. So sometimes people will see these and say it's a different kind of slavery, so it must be okay. We have to think a little bit more carefully about it than that. So we're going to try to do that now. One of our first questions when we see this is, why would Paul write to slaves telling them to obey instead of telling them to abolish slavery? Right? Why didn't he just tell them to run? And one of the first answer to that question is Paul wasn't a politician, right? It's not to say he didn't care about government, but he was not some man with tremendous political power who could just overthrow institutions. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ who was called to proclaim the gospel and to help Christians think about how to live in light of that gospel in their current situations. So with that in mind, it's no surprise that he didn't write uh, some uh, political manifesto to people who can never actually do away with the institution. He's writing a letter to his friends and brothers and sisters about how to honor God in light of the realities that they live in. And so since our relationship with Jesus changes everything, it would impact both how slaves lived in that situation and how masses lived in that situation. And he wants to help them think about how to glorify God in the midst of something that they have no power to change. Right. So we may be kind of mad and frustrated at Paul. Like, Paul, why didn't you just say a few sentences? But we cannot in any way, shape or form try to act like this was him condoning slavery. So here's what I want to do. It's going to sound crazy when I say it. I'm going to point out 11 things, five things in this text, six things in other texts that make it so abundantly clear that God does not condone what happened in our country with slavery. And then we're going to begin to apply it to ourselves. So I'm going to point out five things in this text real quickly, six things in other texts. Don't try to write down all of it because you won't hear any of it. I'm going to try to go very quickly. I may regret this later. Five things in this text. Number one, in verse five, right, it makes clear that these masters, he says, obey your earthly masters. He makes, he makes clear that these masters are just earthly masters. He points to their limited authority and that these slaves have a master in heaven that they ultimately serve. These slaves do not belong to these masters. They belong to God. Number two. In verse 6, we see that God calls for these slaves to do the will of God mainly, not the will of the masters, not just to work for the master's favor. And that undermines the authority of the master, because if those masters call the slaves to do something that disobeys God, they're going to obey God rather than them. They're doing the will of God. Verse 3, I mean, uh, number 3 in verse 9, Paul calls masters to treat slaves in the same way, with the same respect and love that he just told slaves to treat them with. If that doesn't undercut and destroy the, the slavery that happened in the United States, I don't know what would. 
in verse 9, number 4. It says, masters aren't allowed to threaten. They're not even allowed to strike these slaves with words, much less strike them with whips. They can't even threaten abuse, much less actually abuse them. And as we know, the, the American slavery was built on abuse. Fifth thing in this text, slave and master are the same before God. We see that in verse 8. Slave and free get the same rewards, judged by the same God. In verse 9, they have the same master, and it says there is no favoritism. God does not in any way, shape, or form see masters or slaves as superior and inferior. He sees them on the same level. God doesn't play favorites. Five easy things in this text to show is very different. God does not allow what happened with American slavery. Six things very quickly in other texts. Colossians 3.25 says that an evil master will be repaid for the ways that he abuses the slaves. And verse 26 says, hey, treat those slaves fairly because you'll have to answer to God for the way that you treat them. Second, number two, Second Timothy 1 lists enslavers among the kind of people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying if you're the kind of person who kidnaps somebody and tries to treat them as your property to serve you, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Number three, in the book of Philemon, Paul is talking to Philemon, who's a slave owner. And Onesimus, who probably escaped, Paul's saying, I'm sending him back to you. And I want you to receive him not as a slave, but as your brother and equal in Christ. Number four, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, Paul calls for slaves to gain their freedom if they can. Number five, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul talks about the same kind of oneness that we've talked about all of us having with one another. He talks about that between slave and master. They're the same, united in Jesus. And number six, just the whole book of Exodus. Right? God begins redemptive history by hearing the cries of slaves who are burdened, who are under unjust authority, and God hears their cries and he delivers them. There is absolutely nothing in Scripture that would lead us to think that God would condone treating someone as inferior, treating them like property, and making them your slaves. There's nothing in Scripture to suggest that. Glad we got that out of the way. We're going to walk through the text with those things in mind. I, I do want to say this. It's passages like this that did not ultimately uphold slavery, but that led to it being dismantled. No way slavery, the way that it... They wanted it to work, could stand under these conditions. Masters loving and serving the slaves in the same way. That's crazy. It wouldn't work. We're going to read the text again. Walk through it briefly with us in mind. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Why? Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Now, this is, of course, unlike parenting, a man-made kind of authority. Paul calls them to obey with respect and fear as they would obey Christ. And I can only imagine how hard it would be for a slave who was under harsh conditions to hear this. But Jesus, of course, is going to call us to hard things for the sake of of the gospel. He's calling slaves to work hard as if they were serving Jesus because these masters are not their true master. He says with respect and fear or, or fear and trembling. And some people think that means that respect and fear towards those earthly masters. But I think it means respect and fear towards God himself because the entire passage is about not mainly serving to please men, but to please God. Look at verse six. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. They would obey their masters not to earn their favor, but because they were ultimately serving Jesus. What was to drive them was their love for Jesus. And there's a lesson in that for all of us. And that no matter what we do, we ultimately serve the Lord Jesus. Colossians 3.23 says it like this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. At the end of the day, whatever our job is, whatever it is that we're doing, our ultimate boss is not the human boss standing in front of us. It's Jesus himself. And Paul is telling 
all of us, we need to, whatever we do, work heartedly, work wholeheartedly, genuinely, with goodwill, with everything we have, because we're ultimately serving Jesus. And he says, not thinking about them looking at you, not being a people pleaser, but instead being a God pleaser. You know how easy it is? I know I'm not the only one. I hope I'm not the only one. Who finds it very easy to do things for other people instead of for God? Who is very easy to find yourself whether that's serving in some good way or doing any and everything, hoping that somehow it's just people see you and they think you're better. Even preaching a sermon is very easy to think about doing that in a way that would make people like you or think you're, you're good at it. We have problems with people pleasing. And the reason we have problems with people pleasing is because we're discontent and dissatisfied with the pleasure of God himself. We feel like it's not enough which is a crazy insult to the gospel, that Jesus shed his blood, that God could be pleased with us, and our response to God is, that's not good enough for me. I also want people to be pleased. It is absurd for us to live for the pleasure of people instead of for God. I mean, it's just a strange thing, especially since God's opinion is the only one that really matters. This would be like me buying flowers for some other woman besides my wife. Wouldn't really be a smart thing to do, right? Probably wouldn't actually help my relationship or marriage at all. And it would probably cause bad things in my marriage as well. Right? My wife is the only woman who actually matters. It's the only opinion that actually matters. It would gain me nothing to send flowers to some other woman. And in similar fashion, God's opinion is the only one that actually matters. And we can live every second of our life for the pleasure of other people. And it will not do anything good for us. It has no bearing on our eternity. It does nothing good for us. And the thing that it does, just like me buying flowers for someone instead of my wife, is I'm giving my affections and my attentions and everything in the wrong direction when we could be living and serving and going hard for the pleasure of the Lord Jesus. God is saying, hey, whatever we do, let's do it for God. You know what the main danger of people pleasing is? Is that we make decisions about how... Why, when we do things based on who we want to please. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you look back on it afterwards like, why did I say that? Right? Man, tell me your testimony. Well, I was, um, I was in a gang. Like, why are you lying? You weren't in a gang. Like, why would you even say that? Oh, hey, man, how was your week? Knowing you had the worst week. Man, God was good. I had a great week. Why, why do you say these things, right? Because we're ultimately concerned with us looking good to other people. And that skews our decisions. That skews the way we go about things, skews the things that we do, why we do them, when we do them. So we want to work under God's eyes and not the world's eyes. But here's the thing, especially with our work, it has to be a conscious, intentional decision that we make every day. When you, so for instance, when you get to work on Monday morning, Your default in your heart is going to be to work to please other people or just to please yourself. If you do not intentionally think and try to set your heart to honor and please God with the work that you do, you simply won't do it. All of us have the different kind of default areas our heart goes in. Mine personally goes to trying to please other people. Some of us, it'll go to just being comfortable and just pleasing ourselves. Whatever that is, it's not going to just drift towards God. It has to be an intentional, conscious decision that we make every morning. Today, I am going to work heartedly, wholeheartedly for the Lord and not for men. Because, of course, God's opinion is the only one that matters. And the good news is he's already pleased with us through Jesus. We get to obey in light of that. Now, you notice that. God is the one that, of course, judges our deeds, right? He says, verse 8, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. In a passage almost exactly like it in Colossians 3, Paul basically says, and it's the Lord who will judge us for the things that we do. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I wonder how that makes you feel, to know that God keeps an eye on all the things that you do and you'll have to answer to him for. Those of us who are believers in Jesus... It doesn't frighten us that much to know that it is frightening to know that God sees, knows everything, all of our thoughts. But the thing that keeps us from cowering just in fear, just in worry or or falling, uh, uh, falling into crazy guilt and despair is that we know that Jesus has already paid the price for all of our sins and all of our shortcomings and all the things that we're doing that's not right. 
And if you're here and you're not a believer, I want to ask you, what do you think will happen when you stand before God himself? And he sees everything and he knows everything. Unlike your coworkers and the people around you that you try to look good for, God is not fooled by any of that. He sees directly into your heart. My question is, how does it make you feel that you'll have to stand before him and answer to him for every thought, every deed, every conversation that you ever had? The good news about Jesus is that weight and that burden can be lifted off of your shoulders right now if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Because those sins that we're going to owe God for, he's already paid for in Christ. So I pray you'd use this opportunity today as you sit under God's word to turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus, knowing that when you do that, you get his record. You get his resume, which is absolutely perfect. Pray you trust in Christ and be forgiven of your sins today. The last thing I want to look at, we've seen that Jesus changes children and Jesus changes parents, slaves, and finally Masters. Verse 9 says, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Before we talk about that verse, I want you to listen to what Frederick Douglass, we're familiar with Frederick Douglass, a slave was then free to become a great abolitionist and writer. Listen to what he said about Christian, in quotes, slave masters that he came across, or religious ones. This is what he said. For of all slaveholders with whom I have ever met, religious slaveholders are the worst. I have ever found them the meanest and basest, the most cruel and cowardly of all others. Then he begins to talk about one man in particular who found great pleasure and delight and beating his slaves at any and every time. He said there was not a man in the whole country with whom the slaves who, had the, who, who could get their own home would not prefer to live rather than this, Reverend Mr. Hopkins. And yet there was not a man anywhere around who made higher professions of religion or was more active in revivals, more attentive to the class, Luffy's prayer and preaching meetings, or more devotional in his family. They prayed earlier, later, louder, and longer than this same reverend slave driver, Rigby Hopkins. Isn't that tragic to hear? It was the clear reputation among slaves that religious slaveholders were the worst of the worst. Now, we've already made clear that that slavery is a little bit different than what we're talking about here in the New Testament. But what Paul is making very clear to us is our relationship with Jesus absolutely changes the way that we relate to other people. And so anybody who could interact with people in such a way would make you think, I don't know if that man actually knows Jesus. He can if he would disobey him in such a way. For Paul to say to masters, after he's just told slaves to obey them and respect them, to say to masters, and you treat them in the same way, is a crazy thing to say. He wants them to treat them with incredible love and respect. He doesn't allow this kind of man-made institution, this man-made position of authority. He's not going to allow them to abuse those under his care. Instead, he wants them to treat them like brothers and sisters in Jesus. And likewise, any of us in this room with any kind of authority whatsoever should always use that authority in the workplace or anywhere else Never to treat people as lesser than you, as some kind of your personal servants, but instead we should use that to serve and to love people. So yes, we should lead and we should be a leader, but we should find ways to use any kind of small authority and power for good. Power or authority is a great blessing in the hands of a loving person, but it is a terrible weapon in the hands of a selfish person. A selfish heart turns authority and power into a reason to make yourself superior to others. But a God-loving, humble heart uses authority to serve and to love other people. Paul tells masters, hey, don't threaten. And we too should never use authority to threaten. We shouldn't speak threats to people, but blessings. We don't want people to cower before us. Instead, we want people to see what our God is like in the way that we use our authority. To say, hey, there is a God with all authority and power in the universe, and he uses every ounce of that to love. And I love how this passage ends as he talks to masters. 
He says, don't threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with them. I love that the passage ends making very clear that God doesn't play favorites. So if at this point there's any doubt in this master's mind about whether or not it would be okay for him to treat himself as superior and the slave as inferior, he's saying, no, 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 if you know Jesus. That changes everything, and I want you to know that God does not see any kind of superiority or inferiority. There is no favoritism. I went to a concert recently where there were two openers, and these openers, first of all, they weren't very good. God bless them. But these are, they brought, I don't like your music either. Um, but as you watch these openers, they didn't have no lights. It was just a big wrinkled black curtain behind them. The people in the crowd clearly did not come to see them because they were talking and having fun and high-fiving like those people on the stage didn't even exist. But then when it was time for the headliners to come on, all the lights dropped, the set was amazing, it was amazing stuff happening all over the place, and everybody was locked in and attentive, selfie sticks in the air. And it was clear that everybody's favorite had touched the stage. That the production treated them, treated them like the openers, like they weren't the favorites. And the crowd treated them like they weren't the favorites. And nobody cared about them that much. I want you to know God doesn't in any way, shape, or form ever do that with any of us. Give special attention and give extra things. There is no favoritism with God. He's saying, look, if you know Jesus and that slave knows Jesus, God sees both of you exactly the same way. And both of you will have to answer to the same God about the same kinds of deeds. Have no illusion in your mind that anything else would happen. I pray that we would be a community of believers where we reflect that aspect of God's character, where there's no favoritism, where anybody who walks into our community to worship Jesus with us, that we would in the same way show absolutely no favoritism. I mean, even if you think about the, the diversity of the Ephesian church, that yes, there are slaves present that Paul is speaking to. Well, I pray that there's nobody who in our minds is so low that they're not welcome among our community, knowing that God shows no favoritism, and likewise, we shouldn't either, because we have the same master, and that our relationship with Jesus, of course, changes how we relate to everybody else. So in this text, we see that with children, and we see that with fathers, and we see that with slaves, and we see that with masters. I said at the beginning of the service that there at the beginning of the sermon, that there are two basic kinds of relationships, those relationships that really don't make much of a difference, and those relationships that change and define every other relationship and everything else in your life. I see that clearly in my marriage and the way that my wife has helped me to interact with other people in better ways. Your relationship with Jesus absolutely must affect every interaction that you have. And my prayer is that God, through his grace, through what he's done in Christ, would work that in our hearts, work that kind of love and appreciation for others. We would love them like he has. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. God, and we're so grateful for your word. Father, even when we come across texts that are difficult, grateful that you speak to us, Lord. Father, we're grateful that you give us grace to think through how to apply difficult things to our lives. And Father, we're grateful that you haven't just saved us and decided that one day things will be different in heaven, but you've already begun to change things in our lives. Thank you for beginning to make us more like Jesus. And Father, we pray you'd help us to respond to your word in worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.